Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Brother Harold, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Very good, thank you. Good, good. I'm glad to have you on as a guest uh, on this episode. For those who are not aware, Brother Charles Harrell is the author of This Is My Doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology. And Brother Harrell, I found your book absolutely fascinating. I know my listeners, many of them listen to other podcasts as well, and they're going to be familiar with you, but I'm just grateful for the chance to sit down with you today. Well, it's my pleasure. So why don't you start us off? Again, most people will be aware of who you are, but for those who are not, maybe a, a brief introduction about yourself, and uh, and then we'll get into to discussing your book. Okay. Um, just briefly, uh, I grew up in the church back in Indiana, and uh, my parents joined the church when I was actually five years old. So growing up in the mission field, of course, you're exposed to a lot of uh, the different uh, ideas, um, my, all my friends, of course, were either Lutheran or Presbyterian or Catholic. And so the big question was, where do I fit? Uh, how does my religious faith compare to theirs? Uh, so at an early age, I made it a, a matter of studying the gospel, wanting to know why my faith was different. And uh, when I came out to BYU um, to go to college, uh, I just had a voracious appetite for Mormon doctrine, Mormon thought. Uh, I read all the books I could get my hands on, um, went through history of the church, journal of discourses, tried to find out uh, what uh, not only Joseph Smith taught, but what all the subsequent prophets had taught about uh, this or that doctrine. Um, and it became apparent over time, the more I immersed myself into uh, these teachings, and especially as I got exposed to uh, biblical scholarship, that 
the traditional story and narrative that were taught in the church uh, isn't correct in terms of uh, the gospel being taught in its purity and and at least as far as we have evidence of in the scriptures and, and words, that, uh, the history that's been passed down. But the idea that the truth and the teachings, the doctrine has always been the same uh, from the time of Adam and it was taught uh, by Christ and that this is the exact same truth that Joseph Smith restored, uh, that just didn't seem to be consistent with uh, the history as I had learned it and with um, kind of what you could call the phenomena of the, that you that at least I had developed about the scripture uh, in my understanding of the scripture in terms of the human input to scripture, the human imprint on scripture. So um, this led me to look individually at the doctrines and to uh, trace the historical development of the primary doctrines uh, to, as, as they originated in Old Testament times through the New Testament, through uh, the, the early teaching of the church and up to modern times. And it became apparent that for virtually every doctrine that we teach in the church, there is a history associated with that doctrine, that it isn't, hasn't been uniformly taught um, in the same way, and uh, oftentimes doctrines even contradict other doctrines. And so trying to piece all this together uh, led me to the conclusion that uh, doctrine is certainly human-shaped. Uh, while it may be God-inspired, it is uh, definitely a product of humans. That kind of is what uh, the book obviously gets into and talks about. So as as I've well understood and as most of my listeners have kind of grasped by this point, it's a lot more messy than we get in the three-hour block, correct? Yes, I think uh, that would be a, a good way to put it. Good, good. Complex. Yeah, absolutely. So the book, obviously you've been thinking about these things for a long time. You've been researching and studying out how LDS theology and doctrine have developed uh, what was the impetus for finally putting that on paper and, and writing the book that you did? I think the the main thing was um, as I learned about these things, I thought, wow, this is something I wish I had known earlier in my life. I wish I had grown up not just hearing the standard uh, narrative taught in the church, but that I had had some historical knowledge and understanding of the background behind these doctrines. And so my, the main impetus for publishing it was just to be able to share with others some of the discoveries that I had made in hopes that uh, I could save others a lot of time because, let's face it, it takes a lot of time to really dig in and get to the roots of a lot of these doctrinal teachings. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I uh, I want to talk a little bit about Chapter 1 in your book, which is kind of just kind of setting the stage for the different topics that you go into. And uh, I don't want to read it word for word, but there was a there was a part in chapter one where you talked about some of the conservative side of the spectrum within uh, LDS thinking and then the more liberal side and how those two are in conflict. And, and maybe, if you don't mind, maybe speaking a little bit about some of your thoughts that went into writing that first chapter uh, in regards to the different spectrum that's out there within Mormonism. 
Yeah, I, and growing up, I had always been uh, taught and, and under the impression that the conservative story of uh, Mormon theology and church doctrine was the true story and, right. and the only acceptable story. Um, but then as I got into it more, it became clear that um, even church authorities, uh, church scholars are not in agreement on a lot of different teachings and doctrines, and nor are they in agreement on how doctrine developed and the meaning of doctrine in terms of uh, is doctrine, is it synonymous with truth? And, of course, I'm sure we'll get into a discussion a little bit later on just the definition of doctrine itself. But uh, right. um, it, it became clear to me that there was a range of understanding of doctrine. Of course, I quote from both Bruce R. McConkie, which represents the most conservative end of the theological spectrum, and then Lowell Benyon, who was a good, represent, uh, good representative of the opposite end, who said that... Uh, um, the, just quoting from, from the book, he said, instead of trying to get my description of reality out of the scriptures, um, as far as the nature of creation, the age of the earth, etc., I decided those things have nothing to do with religion. So it, it's just a different way of where the conservatives want every little detail to be defined and believe that an answer has been given on it that is a definitive answer uh, I think there's a large liberal component in the church who would say that, well, you know, there are teachings, but those are culturally informed teachings, even in the scriptures, and that we can't use scripture as a definitive, reliable, uh, final word, you know, version of what the truth is. Yep. And what you seem to be speaking to, and you kind of hinted there in, uh, in that quote was that it seems like I've read lots of uh, statements from conservative church authorities who essentially said that within within our having knowledge of the truth of these doctrines is salvation found and and yet that for me and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth but for me I I, I can no longer see things that way in the sense that by me knowing the exact literalness of the fall or of the creation or of Adam's role in the plan of salvation or in other doctrines within the church that that's where salvation for me is going to be gained but rather in a life of dedication to the Savior Jesus Christ but yet as you point out as you kind of talk about the liberal side of that, the conservative side at times has kind of stated that there's a certain knowledge we have to have of these doctrines in order to, to achieve salvation, and it seems like there's a lot of conflict there. Uh, yeah, that's a good observation. Uh, I think it goes back to Joseph Smith's original statement about, uh, you know, we can't be saved in ignorance, and um, a lot of people interpret that and understand it to mean that we have to have knowledge and that knowledge itself is somehow... Uh, has salvation or, or salvific qualities to it. But right. uh, one of the, the, the main purposes of the book as well is to point out that, you know, maybe we have put too high a premium on doctrinal teachings, and maybe they aren't uh, as important as we have assumed them to be. And in the end, uh, in the epilogue, I try to, to wrap it all up and, and bring it to and raise these kinds of questions about, if doctrine is largely human-shaped, then what does that say for the significance and importance of doctrine uh, in our lives? And the conclusion I come up with is that it really is 
the life that we live and our relationship to God, our relationship to people, that really counts, that really matters in the end. Yeah, that's beautiful. I uh, I realize that for people like me reading your book, it was a breath of fresh air and in a sense almost kind of like a lifeline and that it helped me to understand that these crazy thoughts and ideas that I was having run through my head about how these doctrines came to be, that some of that wasn't quite as crazy. And I'll give you an example. Some of the episodes that I've been working on lately that'll probably release before uh, people hear this interview with you, I did one where I looked into how priesthood developed. And we kind of just make this assumption that 12-year-olds always were ordained to deacons, 14-year-olds to teachers, and, and so on and so forth. But in reality, like you and I were talking about earlier, that's extremely messy, and your book helped to kind of clarify that. But my question kind of speaks to the other side of the coin, which is, have you found that for those who are more naive to this transformation within the church and its doctrine, has the book at all been seen as damaging to others, or have you gotten any negative feedback, or has everything been positive? Um, I've received uh, really a surprisingly uh, amount of positive feedback on the book, and I'm not sure if that's because people who read it yeah, the book either uh, kind of resonates with people or it's it's a little bit dissonant with people. And uh, those who are still in that conservative mindset, uh, it's a little bit, I would say, uh, harsh for them to read it and sympathize or empathize with the message of the book because they're so steeped. And I can understand this. I was there myself at one time yeah. where, hey, this does not fit the accepted, you know, the meta-narrative that uh, the church has uh, traditionally fostered. And so uh, I'm just going to, I'm not going to read anymore. So a lot of people would just put it down and, and not take it further. But uh, I've, I've received a lot of positive feedback, mainly from people who recognize the complexity, the messiness of Mormon doctrine, and uh, see this as being a place where a lot of these messy issues have been brought together in sort of a historical context. Awesome. I uh, One of the things I've been thinking about lately, maybe you can share a thought on this, I, I know... We sometimes want to split people up into being this side's conservative and that side's liberal and, and they see things from their own vantage point. But one of the, the things I've kind of had to force myself to deal with, and I, I agree with you, I see Elder Bruce R. McConkie as a very conservative Latter-day Saint who, and we'll talk about this in a little bit too, but at times tends to overstate the doctrine beyond where the Lord has established it, if that makes sense. And I hope that's fair, and I hope I'm not coming off too critical. But even within his thinking and reasoning, it's neat to come across quotes where he points to ideas such as things within the fall being figurative, or in his talk, uh, What Think Ye of Salvation by Grace, he talks about uh, that we're not saved by works, even those of God. And so even in some of these conservative, what I would call LDS theologians, and some of them happen to be general authorities as well, it's interesting to go back into their writings and find some nuance, even within the things that they talk about and speak of. Um, has that been your experience as well? Yeah. Um, in fact, in the preface, I, I quote uh, Elder McConkie saying, the last word has not been spoken on any subject. And so you do see and sense an openness in thought, even in people like uh, Bruce R. McConkie. But 
uh, unfortunately, the predominant teaching, you know, his volumes of books, Mormon Doctrine, you know, the the uh, Christ series and so on, uh, New Witness for the Articles of Faith, uh, they all come across, unfortunately, as very definitive. This is the doctrine. This is the teaching. And so we've got that tension that exists in a lot of areas in the church, and even within the scriptures themselves, there's this tension of, uh, gosh, we see through a glass darkly, and yet we have a lot of scriptural pronouncements that um, these commandments, these revelations are of God, and, and you must receive them and believe them the way that they're presented, or you can't be saved. So it's a, it's a dilemma. Yep. And I agree. There's, there's a lot of overreaching at times. And, and so you hinted at a little bit ago about discussing the definition of the word doctrine itself. I, I want to get your thoughts on that word. And I, I want to ask it this way. I know in preparation for this interview, I'd mentioned uh, an episode I had did on race and priesthood. And I wanted to ask if you had a chance to listen to that. I did. I thought that was, uh, very insightful. I think that uh, the new essay from the church on race and the priesthood really underscores this whole concept and the the conundrum kind of that we're in in trying to sort out what is doctrine, what is official doctrine, what's the difference between doctrine and theory. Why do we call these past teachings of leaders theory when we no longer accept them as being doctrine? <laughs> so yeah. it's a challenge. Yeah. yeah, and so I want to get your thoughts and the question's going to be after I preface this, which is how do you define doctrine? But I want to preface it with, with this. We have multiple quotes in the church from general authorities speaking in official terms, even from the pulpit and general conference, where it is pretty clear that the only way we've ever defined doctrine outwardly is to say that it is those teachings that are revealed by our Father in Heaven and His Son in which prophets and those who are inspired have received and hence have implemented into the church's practice. And we have comments from, or quotes from Elder Oaks, we have quotes from Elder Christofferson and Elder Anderson which talk about this. Um, and and yet, if we're going to deal with this race article, and, and I would even venture to say that there's other things that we could easily point out, such as the Savior, it being pointed out that it was doctrine that he being born on April 6th, and yet now we know that that was just a, a false assumption when we assumed that the writings on Section 20 belonged to the Prophet Joseph, when in reality it was a heading added in later by uh, John Whitmer. And so, seeing that doctrine is not always the revealed teachings of our Father in Heaven, and inspired truth, and yet we've been taught that it is, how do we reconcile that? How do we define doctrine? Yeah. Um, it is interesting that we we toss around the term doctrine as though it is synonymous with truth. And um, yet I would say that we don't have a problem talking about false doctrine. And what does that mean to say false truth? Uh, it's kind of an oxymoron. Uh, we don't have any problem talking about uh true doctrines and distinguishing between doctrines that are true, doctrines that are false. Even the Doctrine and Covenants talks about uh, doctrines of men, doctrines of devils. Um, so I think doctrine itself is a value-neutral term. Uh, it doesn't say that it's a true doctrine or false doctrine. Doctrines are simply teachings or beliefs in a religious sense, uh, teachings or beliefs of a church or, or a community of believers. So um, it really needs a qualifier, an adjective, to valorize 
doctrine, to make it true or false. And so we can say, I think, then, uh, I think we can justifiably say uh, we have doctrines of the church that we accept, perhaps even believe, but that doesn't necessarily make them absolute truths. Uh, there is a definition of doctrine that the church gives in the general handbook of instructions, and it says, quote, the doctrines of the church are found in the scriptures and the teachings of Latter-day prophets and apostles. So while it doesn't say this is the definition of doctrine, but if we if we just consider that doctrines are teachings, those teachings, those approved, authorized teachings, are those teachings that are contained in the scriptures and the teachings of the Latter-day Prophets and Apostles. Can, can I ask you a question there? So the trouble with that, though, from my perspective, is that if someone's not thinking deeper, if someone isn't at a point where they've explored things like you and I have, the automatic assumption there is to assume that those doctrines that are taught in the scriptures and doctrines that are taught by Latter-day Prophets are automatically truth. But in reality, as you and I very well know, there's room in that statement then to say, hey, not everything that's in those two things are true. Right? I mean, am I off base in saying that? No, I, I think that's a good distinction. And what this is saying is these are the doctrines of the church. We have beliefs, we have practices in the LDS church similar to the way that other churches have doctrines as well that they teach. We don't, those are different from our doctrines, but so to, I I think we just run into a lot of uh, difficulty when we equate doctrine with absolute truth. And I think the, the normal usage of the term doctrine doesn't work that way. Uh, even though we we like to steer it that way and say, but but it it uh, creates problems, uh, like we talked about with this race in the priesthood. We can't call those teachings or practices in the past doctrines if we don't really believe them. So now they become uh, either uh, unofficial doctrines, unofficially taught. They're not official doctrines, or they're theories, or we try to give some other uh, descriptive. Uh, definition for him. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I just, I struggle with it and I'm not, again, I, I, I'm going to come off as being critical, but I'm just, in order to explore this subject, it kind of requires us to ask some tough questions. And so I, my question would be, and you can feel free to answer this however you want, but there's this tension where it's almost, we almost need to get away from defining doctrine as absolute truth. And, and, and I don't mean this from you and me in a, in a local level, but we've almost got to have some some clarification higher up that says, hey guys, uh, we've explained doctrine in the past as being all truth revealed from God, but in reality that's not the case. And, and I get we hint at it. We we had Elder Uchtdorf in the past conference say that we've made mistakes, some of which may have violated our culture, values, and doctrines. And, and we have the sense that there have been things said by leaders off in a corner that's not binding on the church. But in reality, even things that have been accepted by all 15 of the leaders at one present time, such as Christ being born on April 6th, such as, uh, and more importantly, I think we can even be more definitive in saying the, those theories behind the race ban, that those were taught universally in throughout the church. We almost as a whole church kind of have to take this uh, this leap of maturity and just kind of deal with this head on. Or, or do you feel like we're doing that already? Uh, I, I think that we are approaching it, getting closer to it, but we still use this doctrine, the term doctrine, uh, in, I think, a poor way. 
Uh, the problem is we don't have a doctrine of doctrine. <laughs> right. And, and so we have doctrines about everything else, but we haven't really come to grips with what do we really mean by doctrine? And what is the difference between official and non-official doctrine? You know, where do we draw the line there? And everybody wants to draw that line differently. And, uh, then there's the, the equation with truth or not truth. And so it just raised a whole lot of issues in my mind. Yep. And, uh, you know, and Elder Anderson and Elder Christofferson a few conferences ago tended to want to limit the definition of doctrine to those things that all 15 men believed, taught, and preached of universally. But even this new race article that came out on LDS.org essentially puts that even as a, as a definition that doesn't work all the time. And I do find it intriguing. We're talking about this subject and we're making it sound like the church has always, in every single instance, defined doctrine in this in this incorrect way. But in reality, that's not true. I had a uh, I don't know if you know Kevin Christensen or not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh-huh. Yes. So he wrote an article uh, in for Fair Mormon in regards to how we define prophets and what makes a prophet a true prophet or a false prophet. And he uses kind of as the background. And I interviewed him uh, about a month ago. He uses as the background Doctrine and Covenants section one. Which really does, and I was unaware of this until he brought it to my attention, but he really, it really does, that section brings about how we define prophets and who they are and what they can do and what they can't do. And one of the scriptures in there talks about that those prophets whom the Lord calls, that at times they shall err, and that when they do, it shall be made known. And so we do have room in our theology to look at prophets in the way that the Lord defines them and how he defines doctrine and to say, hey, these guys are going to make mistakes. And when they do, sooner or later, these things will come to the surface and we'll deal with them. Um, so I, I appreciate your input on kind of how that's you're seeing that beginning to happen. Um, I'll ask kind of an off-the-cuff question and you can you can decline this and or not, but what other things do you see that we need to do to kind of fix this? Um, I heard an interesting expression once that uh, trying to define doctrine in Mormonism is trying is like trying to nail jello to a wall, and I think that's pretty descriptive yeah. of this whole uh, difficult issue of trying to really nail it down and uh, describe exactly what it is. I think though that we do have a legacy of teachings in the church, uh, not only about doctrine but of of all of the individual doctrines and teachings that we have in the scriptures and teachings of prophets in pronouncements that are signed by, you know, as you mentioned, by the, the uh, First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, that are there, and yet when they change, you know, how do we, how do we then deal with that and, and explain it if we have locked ourselves into this rigid definition of doctrine as absolute truth. This is now doctrine. You can rely on it. Um, but as you point out, there there's certainly the idea of, of erring in doctrine. There's an interesting uh, a statement that I've included in the book by President J. Ruben Clark, um, who said that only the president of the church has the right to receive revelations for the church, nor are mandatory, or to give authoritative interpretations of scripture that shall be binding on the church or to change in any way the existing doctrines of the church. So to state that the president has the right to change church doctrine certainly implies that doctrines are not fixed, they're not rigid, they're not necessarily absolute truths. 
So there is a lot of precedent for the idea that doctrines can change. Uh, we don't need to assume that if something is church doctrine, that it is the, the final last word on a particular subject. Yeah, and that's good. Um, just me personally, my definition for doctrine, and I think it would be easy, and, and part of it's going to come by us teaching members a little more strongly that the Holy Ghost is their guide and teach them to rely on that. Now, we have quotes from Hubie Brown and Brigham Young and others, uh, Elder Christopher, no, I'm sorry, Elder Uchtdorf and his uh, CES fireside, What is Truth, restated Brigham Young's quote where he essentially talked about we need to rely on the Spirit rather than just trusting our leaders to lead us, you know, completely without any questioning. And so my definition for doctrine is, and, and perhaps it's, you know, I don't know if it's usable or not, but doctrine, some of it's true, some of it isn't, uh, and let the Holy Ghost be your guide. And obviously, within the institution, none of us have a right to go contrary to the leaders and teach things in opposition to them as absolute truths, but in the reality, the ball's in each of our courts to decide between us and the Spirit uh what is right and what isn't. I mean, is that the same kind of idea you you kind of hold to? Um, I think that's a good, healthy way to view it. Um, of course, the challenge even of that view is how do we know that the impressions and feelings that we get are reliable? Because we find teachings that are presented by others who, um, you know, Prophet Joseph Smith would often say, you know, I have uh, the oldest record in, on earth, the, the Holy Ghost telling me these things. Uh, people bearing witness, uh, saying, I know that these things are true. I bear testimony that these things are true. And yet, um, what does that really mean when, when later uh, you hear an opposing testimony or some other contradictory teaching? But I think ultimately, the responsibility for discerning doctrine has to be with every individual. We have to use our God-given gifts, talents, reason, uh, the, the gift of the Spirit, to ultimately arrive at at least a conclusion about what is, what is true or what we can, can reasonably or soundly believe. Yeah, and and with the caveat that each of us, and I know you do this well, and and uh, and I think I think the listeners of this podcast kind of catch on to this too. But but to also be flexible enough that when new information comes, that one doesn't entrench so deeply on whatever their current belief is that they're unwilling to change. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I just, for me personally, um, I am uh, unable to say that I believe that I have an infallible guide to lead me to the truth or to tell me what the truth is. Uh, I think, for me at least, truth or belief is always tentative. It's always provisional. It's always subject to further light and knowledge, if we want to say that. Yep. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And and it kind of speaks to this idea, even in the definition I gave, and I realize you're, you're saying the Holy Ghost can give each of us different impressions, and I think that's kind of the thing I'm admitting, which is that, you know, leaders have given us doctrine. They felt influenced by the Spirit. Some of those things have turned out uh, to be incorrect. And so we, we've got to come to a grasp that multiple good, faithful people can ponder the same subject, can feel impressed and inspired, and yet come to different conclusions on how they they stand on that issue. Yeah. When we have the idea, I, I, I think that's that's 
perfect. Um, when we're taught to uh, believe that the church is guided by revelation, we tend to equate that with, oh, what the church teaches from its leaders is going to be inspired, it's going to be true, it's going to be reliable. Uh, here's an interesting quote by Brigham Young. He said, it was asked me by a gentleman how I guided the people by revelation. And he said, I teach them to live so that the spirit of revelation may make plain to them their duty day by day. Awesome. That they are able to guide themselves. And so this this is another kind of tension in the church. We're taught to rely and to follow the prophets that you know they they know the way, but yet at the same time, what these prophets are telling us is that you as members, we as members, need to rely on the Spirit, need to be close to the Spirit, to be led by the teachings of the Spirit. So yeah, I, I agree with you that uh, ultimately we've got to rely on the light that is in each of us. And however that light comes, through spiritual right. means, through through our own reasoning, through information, through what we see and observe through the senses, there's lots of forms of revelation. Excellent, excellent. I uh, You talked a little bit earlier about uh, Scripture, and you used the definition of doctrine out of the handbook, which talks about uh, our doctrine is found in the Scriptures. And yet, having studied some of this out over the last couple of years and trying to figure my way through it, we obviously come to the conclusion that even Scripture is imperfect and has uh, errors and, and flaws to it. So how how do you see Scripture? How do you... How do you still give it a sacred definition and yet yet recognize that on any issue or teaching that it's not necessarily the ultimate authority on defining truth? Well, my personal view of Scripture is that, um, and I, I still live with this this feeling and and treat Scripture with this aura of sacredness of you know, divine truths coming down from heaven. But yet, I think we have been conditioned to view Scripture that way, and that's not how the ancients necessarily viewed Scripture. If we look at how Scripture actually came about uh, anciently, these were uh, teachings and interpretations of God's hand working among people that changed from generation to generation. And so, as you point out, we've got teachings in the Scriptures themselves that cause us to pause and ask ourselves, is that something that God would really command people to do or to uh, to believe in? You know, we have the, the whole narrative of the creation story and those sorts of things. So scripture for me really comes down to what we have. Uh, and, and here's a problem, too, that is in from the church perspective, is that we don't have a well-defined doctrine of Scripture. Um, if you go to the LDS website, it defines Scripture as simply, in fact, I'll, I'll quote it here, it says, words both written and spoken by holy men of God when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Right. So that, that gives a lot of latitude of interpretation itself. You know, how are, how can people be moved? What are the different ways they can be moved by the Holy Ghost? So I think that, uh, Really, when you get down to it from a practical standpoint, Scripture for Latter-day Saints are the standard works of the church. What makes them standard? Well, it's because they have been voted by the church. P. 
people, the church, the community of believers make scripture. God doesn't make scripture. It's, it's the people who decide what scripture is and they vote on it. And we have, of course, the example that I point out in the book that, uh, uh, the lectures on faith were voted on as scripture to be contained in the standard works of the church. In 1921, those lectures were removed, uh, effectively becoming decanonized or descripturalized, if we want to think of it that way. That's, that's interesting. And that'll kind of lead to some of these other questions I want to ask you. And now a brief message from one of our sponsors. The sponsor is a regular listener to Mormon Discussion Podcast. He has written the book, 77 Days in September. It tells of the story of a man overcoming countless obstacles to reunite with his family after a terrorist attack disrupts the United States. 77 Days is based on a real threat, and while not LDS fiction, it is suitable for an LDS audience. It has sold over 75,000 copies, spent five weeks ranked in Amazon's Top 100, narrowly missed the New York Times bestseller list, and has over 1,800 reviews with 90% of reviewers rating it four or five stars. If you like to read books, you will love 77 Days in September. 77 Days in September is currently available as an ebook for just $3.99 from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and Smashwords. Please show your support for this sponsor of our program by purchasing his book, 77 Days in September. And now back to the second half of our episode of Mormon Discussion. Throughout your book, you talk about how doctrine in theology develops and pointing out the idea that we've added things into our canon as scripture and then we've removed them, as you say, essentially taking them out of, as scripture, no longer applying that definition to them. And, and this, this happens a lot. And so maybe on several of these issues, maybe you can just give us kind of a brief idea so that we can, so for those who are listening to this podcast who maybe are not thinking about these deeper issues, that they can, they can see a glimpse of the complexity that goes into it. And so the first one I want to start with is the early view within church history and teachings that very much followed the culture of the day within the Trinitarian view. And and then today what we have is this, in a sense, monotheistic faith where Heavenly Father Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, at the very bare minimum, they're separate gods, even though they act with the same will and motives. But even beyond that, within Mormonism, there's this idea that we can become gods, that there are other gods besides the Godhead. So maybe if you could speak to it for a moment about that development. Uh, yeah, that's one of the, I think, the clearest um, transitions or evolutions of doctrine is uh, the doctrine of the Godhead itself. Um, if you go back to the earliest Old Testament teachings, and, and Hebrew and biblical scholars will tell you this, that uh, there was actually a... Uh, sort of a, a plurality of gods, the divine council of gods, with uh, uh, Jehovah being the head god, or, or um, at least a head god. Uh, in some context, Jehovah is one of the sons of God that uh, is given a people, namely Israel, uh, as his subjects for him to be their god, and other nations had other gods. Um, we interpret that today in Mormonism. Uh, we, we like to point to that to set and, and say, see, you know, originally there was a plurality of gods. That's been now restored. We have the same doctrine that they believed in the beginning. But uh, the way that was understood in uh, Hebrew times was it was a different paradigm of, of gods than what we believe in today. Uh, so we do have the monotheistic sort of faith that came into New Testament times, and clearly in New Testament teachings, 
The focus is on one true God. There is only the one God and uh, one Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was not uh, was was never considered to be a God in terms of another God. Now he was considered to be one with God, but uh, never another God. And this this became the basis for the Trinitarian view of the Godhead that developed in. Um, the, the Nicene times and carried on through to the time of Joseph Smith. And when you read the early teachings of the, in the church of Joseph Smith and the early revelations even, you can't help but get, if you were to read those ignoring future subsequent teachings, you would come away with the idea that this is the traditional Trinitarian God. And uh, there's the, the Book of Mormon makes repeated reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost being one God. Now, today, in order to harmonize that with the teaching of a more of a tritheistic or you know the, this multiple gods, we say, well, what that means is they are one Godhead. They are still three gods, plural. But that wasn't a teaching that that uh, existed in the early days of the church. And it wasn't until later teachings that the prophet taught that uh, there are uh, multiple personages in the Godhead. And, of course, that started out in the lectures on faith with two personages, with the Holy Ghost not being a personage at all, until eventually the Holy Ghost was taught as being a person. Um, I think that, what is that, section 130 or somewhere around there. Um, and then, in the later Nauvoo teachings, Joseph Smith finally said, not only are they three persons, but they are three gods. And we have the ideas you mentioned that not only are they the gods then that we worship, but that we each have the ability to develop to become gods ourselves. Now, there was an interesting essay, of course, the most recent essay that the church published about uh, God and the nature of God and the Godhead and uh, what it means to become like God. And it's almost uh, backing off of some of the later teachings of Joseph Smith that uh, God was once a man, that he was just like us. He is an exalted man, uh, and just like any of us can be, to almost make God ontologically different from humans to, to where we will always be subject to God. We can become like God, but never a God in the full and complete sense somehow that God is God. Um, so it's kind of interesting uh, how we position that teaching and try to make it consistent, backward compatible, if you will, with, yeah. with the, the different teachings that have been given over time. Good, good. I want to touch on one more subject in the book and just we're talking today with Charles Harrell, author of This Is My Doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology. I uh, One of the other things I came across, and, and we were talking about this a little bit before the interview, these two ideas. So on one hand, we teach in the church that each of us as individuals are intelligences, that we've always existed, that we are eternal, that we didn't, that we in a sense weren't, we didn't come into being or into creation through God's hands but rather that he discovered us as intelligences and wanted us to to accomplish or to reach the potential that he has, and so he has provided a way for us to do that. On the other hand, there's this other teaching 
within the church that God indeed is our creator and created us and that we are the literal spiritual offspring of him. Uh, any thoughts on how we got to this place where we have both these, in a sense, I think anyway, conflicting ideas and, and maybe how we reconcile those or how you think about those two uh, ends of the spectrum? Um, yeah, that's another good uh, example of doctrinal development uh, and change over time. Um, in the uh, the earliest teachings that we have, uh, in fact, when the Book of Mormon came out, Orson Pratt, reflecting back, said, "I don't think I ever would have uh, discovered or or supposed that there was a doctrine of preexistence had there not been for teachings subsequent to the Book of Mormon." Uh, speaking specifically about the the Book of Moses, Joseph Smith's translation of the the Genesis account. Um, so it's really there that we get the first idea or inkling of uh, a pre-existence of people. Now, people will look at, at, the, at the Book of Mormon, in particular Alma 13, and try to say that, uh, yeah, that says that we were foreordained there to receive the priesthood. Um, but if you read that carefully and in context and in the larger context of Joseph Smith's culture and related biblical passages, uh, there isn't a, a good case that can be made for that as establishing a doctrine of preexistence. So the first one, first clear teaching, doesn't come until the book of Moses, which, as you pointed out, emphasizes a spiritual creation, that we were created spiritually. Um, so there was no idea, at least initially, that we always existed as intelligences, uh, later, there was an idea that, yeah, not only were we created, but we were created out of God's divine essence or this, this spirit of truth, which is eternal. And that's sort of the, the idea that gets expressed in Doctrine and Covenants section 93, that man was also beginning with God, intelligence or the light of truth. And it also equates that as being that is what God's essence is, is intelligence, light, truth, and that we kind of emanated from that. Um, and you find that idea in early teachings. And it wasn't really until the later Nauvoo teachings that Joseph Smith started talking about the eternal uh, nature of intelligences, plural. And, of course, that's that's the idea found in the book of Abraham, where it talks about spirits are nullum or eternal. There's no mention there of them being uh, begotten spirits or even organized in the sense of fashioned in the same way that uh, everything was created physically and being fashioned, but rather that spirits always existed. Intelligences, said Joseph Smith, uh, always existed. Uh, so then you come into the issue of, well, where does spirit birth come into all this? And I would contend that there isn't a single scriptural passage in any of the standard works that refers explicitly to spirit birth. All of the passages that are used um, are generally truth, uh, what I call proof texts in the book, uh, where scripture is, it, it, it has a sounding like we are spiritually born of God in the preexistence, but invariably it's referring to other contexts, other meanings of the parenthood of God and so on. 
Um, now, that doesn't say that it wasn't necessarily understood by uh, writers of Scripture, but it's not explicitly stated in Scripture. And so you don't have the first clear teachings of uh, God having spirit offspring until after the death of Joseph Smith. So that's a teaching that developed in the church, kind of synthesized from the disparate teachings of Joseph Smith on the fact that there was a spiritual creation, but also trying to reconcile that with the fact, the idea that spirits always existed and uh, and there's some relationship that we have with the divine, that we have this spark of divinity within us. And people then drawing the analogy, which... Uh, you know, Joseph Smith taught a very naturalistic theology in many respects. He taught that there were parallels. Things on earth paralleled the way things are in heaven. So from inference, pulling all these ideas together, um, that seems to be the best explanation, the, the, the most, uh, uh, you know, looking at all the evidence at least, that seems to be the most compelling explanation for how we got the idea of spirit birth that we have today. Gotcha. And and that leads into the second part here, maybe just, just a statement more than a question, but you talk about us being the literal offspring of God, that that not coming about until after the death of the prophet Joseph Smith. And I was intrigued as I was reading your book this morning, kind of refreshing on a couple of these things before this interview. There's the idea that uh, that Lucifer and his angels, as the literal offspring of God as well, that that obviously also doesn't come about until after the death of the prophet Joseph Smith. And and so I wanted to ask you, you know, where's the first place that we get that from? I mean, who's who's teaching that and, and in what context? Um, that's a good question. I'd have to uh, look exactly in the section on the pre-existence. Actually, I think it's under, uh, possibly even under God the Father as the father of our spirits. But I believe it comes from a later teaching of W.W. W. Phelps, where he talked about uh, in, I think this was in December of uh, 1844, where he talked about uh, the fact that you had uh, Jesus, who was the elder brother, the oldest brother, and then talked also about uh, Satan being one of the sons of God as well in the spirit. But before that time, prior to that time, Satan is just referred to as as this other nemesis uh, to God that existed, um, and generally it was assumed that he was just one of the created beings like all the angels. In fact, angels in general uh, are never referred to as uh, children of God in the sense of being the literal spirit offspring of God. They were just a different species of creature like Satan was, totally different from humans, a different race. And so it wasn't until uh, near the end of 1844, early part of 1845, that uh, all these teachings started coming together where it was recognized that they were all the same species, that were all the offspring of God, angels, uh, Satan, uh, humans, who were all spirit offspring of God. Gotcha. That that's it's just intriguing. You know, we automatically kind of assume that other than you know the the revelation in seventy eight and the official declarations that the really the only new uh, deep theological 
discussion occurs during the life of the prophet Joseph Smith, and but as you're pointing out, there are several doctrines we hold within our core that we think originate in his lifetime, but actually don't come until later. I just I found that very interesting. We are we're with uh, Professor Charles Harrell, uh, author of the book This Is My Doctrine: The Development of Mormon Theology. I want to ask you one last question, and uh, and that is because knowing that in your research and in your studying that you've obviously had to kind of flip paradigms. You mentioned earlier that the teachings and theology that the conservative side of Mormonism, what they were teaching was the way that it was kind of put across for all of us that this is the truth. And in reality, there's a lot more flexibility and a lot more uh, opportunity to take different viewpoints. How did you personally uh, handle those kinds of paradigms being changed. I mean, and I guess the final question I want to ask kind of as you talk about that answer, I want to lead that into what advice you have for others who are struggling with that uh, that process. Yeah, so I, I think, and that's a good question, I think the first step is to recognize that um, Scripture is not this uniform monolithic set of teachings. In fact, there is no... Uh, we, we talk about our scripture or, or, or our doctrine being contained in the scriptures. Uh, there is no scriptural doctrine, really, per se. There's only uh, interpreted scriptural doctrine. It's all interpretation. And it's fascinating to me how we tend to read back into the scriptures, as you say, you know, our, our current LDS views, we assume that that that's the way it was always believed. And so when we read about Satan rebelling in the pre-existence, we think, automatically think in our mind, put it in the context of, oh, he was one of the spirit children. He was our brother who, you know, rebelled against God, so to speak. Uh, but when, when one first comes to the realization that doctrines, that beliefs have changed over time, um, and that scripture itself is a history, it's a recorded history of doctrinal development. It's one era or generation reinterpreting a previous era or generation's doctrinal and theological beliefs, adapting them to their own time, to their own situation, and giving new meaning to them. So, in fact, this is what we have then, as you point out, we have the traditional view of Scripture as being the sacred and absolute word of God with the human phenomena of Scripture, which is that, hey, these are, these are the records of humans and their, their reactions to God's dealings with them and their explanations of what these meant in their lives in their times. So once we recognize that, then what we, what I think we need to do, um, and, and what people tend to do is move beyond the critical stage of saying, wait a minute, if it's not what I had thought it was, if it's not what the church and the, and the self testimony of scripture itself states that it is, then it's all false. It's all a sham. Okay. That's, that's one conclusion that can be drawn. The other conclusion that one can draw is that, well, let's let's understand Scripture for what it really is, that these are humans speaking 
as the LDS definition of Scripture refers to, uh, when they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost, or what they felt was the Holy Ghost, or whatever inspiration they felt at the time that was meaningful and profound enough to them to record it down and to be later passed down uh, to us and uh, voted on eventually to be our scripture, our accepted text that binds us as a faith community. So if we can accept scripture that way, then we can move past that either or thinking about scripture and see scripture for what it is, that it's the human reaction to their spiritual experience. It isn't God imposing uh, a mindset onto the people. Um, and, And I think once we arrive at that stage in our understanding of Scripture, we can give a lot more allowance for the human component of Scripture, for conflicting narratives in Scripture. And when I say Scripture, too, we can extend that to the teachings of prophets through time and how they have changed. And there's there's hardly any of the uh, beliefs that originated, for example, with Brigham Young that we accept today as orthodox in any way. Um, we've been able to move on and, and say, well, those are obviously human-shaped uh, Brigham Young, and, and we, we throw the, uh, the, the race and the priesthood back on Brigham Young and say he was a victim of his time and of his culture. Well, why don't we extend that to accept the fact that all prophets at all times are uh, products of their time and culture? If we can do that... Then the next stage is to say, well, then what good is scripture? So a lot of people would view that as a low view, a very low view of scripture. And we've lost the high view of scripture that gave scripture its power and influence in our lives. It's now lost its magic for us. Okay, at that point, that's, I think, where a lot of uh, Christian, I think we can learn a lot from uh our fellow Christians who are writing about this incarnational view of Scripture, where we look at how Christ himself was both fully divine and fully human. And we need to ask ourselves, does that diminish who Christ was, the fact that he was also fully human? And I think all of us would agree that, well, no, that doesn't necessarily diminish who Christ was or diminish his divinity. In a similar way, A lot of uh, Christian Protestant writers and even Catholic writers are promoting the idea that that's how we need to view Scripture. Not that that gives us a a low view of Scripture, but it actually uh, elevates Scripture when we see that um, Scripture itself is God, God gives to humankind the tools, like I said, the, all these methods of revelation that we can express about God. There's an interesting quote here by a Protestant uh, theologian who said, the doctrine of inerrancy is often referred to as a high view of Scripture. It is not. It is a low-down, dirty trick to play on the Bible and on anyone who tries to read it. Inerrancy is not a victimless crime. It chases some people away from the Bible and prevents others from reading it intelligently. 
So in a way, if we really take the scriptures seriously, not necessarily take them word for word uh, for, uh, for their word, but if we take them seriously and examine them for what they really are, then that uh, that is taking the scripture seriously, and it can also be a high view of scripture. But it's all a way how uh, it's it's just how we however we want to or choose to view it, right? I mean, some people will just dismiss it and say, well, it's not worth anything. Other people will find meaning in the scripture. As you pointed out, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, it goes beyond the doctrinal teachings. That's not what Scripture is primarily for. It's to get us to uh, come to or, or develop a relationship with God, uh, with the Savior, to get us to develop a community of love, of serving one another, uh, a community of, of saints. And that's the primary purpose. So, so I think that's the view that we need to come to personally. Yeah, I like that. And it, it kind of speaks to this idea that scripture may have some, some divine in it. It may have some man-made things, some good and some bad. And yet it, as a whole, it still can be inspiring and, and, and an inspirational tool to bring us unto Christ. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, thank you, Brother Harold, for being on today. I, uh, I appreciate it so much. I, I guess I, I, Want to do? Want to ask one more question, which should be a really easy one, which is where can people find uh, this this incredible book you've written? Uh, it's available a lot of places. Obviously, Amazon Book, uh, Benchmark Books uh, carries it. Um, I think even, you can even get it through Deseret Book. So uh, it's available a lot of places. Um, go out and buy it. <laughs> Awesome. It is a good read, and I would recommend for my listeners and anybody who happens to to catch this podcast to uh, to check out uh, Charles Harrell's book, uh, This Is My Doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology. If you want to know how the teachings that we have today, how they've come into being, and how they've trans- uh, transformed over, over our history of our church, uh, just an incredible read, very well put together. Thank you so much. Uh, Brother Harold, for being on today. Enjoy being with you, Bill, and uh, good luck to you and your continued podcasting. Has shown, pause to help and lift another, finding strength beyond my own. Savior, may I learn to love Thee, Lord. I would fall. Sorry.